Welcome to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, a podcast that's all about changing the way we view midlife and bringing the conversation about menopause out into the open. Each week we share stories, experiences and inspiration. We talk to experts on how to best navigate this time of life and find out how other people have not only survived but thrived through this time. I'm your host, Karen O'Connor. Hello and welcome to this week's episode. Today I've actually got two guests. I'm so fortunate. I've got here Alison Bryant and Kate Hooper, and they're both physiotherapists at the Queensland Pelvic Floor Centre. Welcome. Thanks, Karen. Hi, Karen. And it's really interesting because you both specialise in the same thing, like pelvic health, not just for women, but for men and all the stuff that goes with that. Is that you work together, right? Yeah. So did you form, were you like the basis of Queensland Pelvic Health Centre? Did you start it or was it already there and you kind of got on with it? Okay, Who wants to go first? <laughs> <laughs> um, it was really a bit of a conglomerate. There's two colorectal specialists, a urogyne and a gastroenterologist who were very big on setting up uh, a multidisciplinary clinic um, and they wanted Alison and I to come on board and we have another physio coming on board soon as well. And we have a nurse practitioner and a dietitian. So the idea was that we wanted everything in one place with quality specialists so that people could get the, the treatment that they needed because so often in this field people can't find anyone with good skills. No, it's really interesting you say that because I had a pelvic mesh removed a couple of years ago. So that my gynecologist put me on to a physiotherapist and she's a urogynecologist as well. But it's it's all interlinked. And we, I don't think most of us realise how interlinked those disciplines are. We think we go see a gynae and we go see a, a urologist and we might go see somebody else and the physio possibly fits in there somewhere, but I don't know where. But it is all actually, it is interdisciplinary, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and a lot of the sure. patients that we see um, have really complex pelvic floor problems. So actually having everyone all in one place um, under the one roof is really beneficial that we can actually um, cross-refer. And one of the good things about the um, Queensland Pelvic Floor Centre is that when people um, first come in, they can see the nurse practitioner and have that initial consultation um, under um, Medicare rebate and then she can make recommendations as to who the uh, patient might need to see beyond that. So the nurse basically works as a triage. So you go in there if you've got an issue and the nurse effectively does triage and says you go go see them and you go go see them. Well, the patient can, um, from the website, can just book in for physio or um, can be GP referred initially to one of the specialists. That certainly happens. Um, but people can self-refer themselves directly to the nurse practitioner um, and, and start at that point. So there are different entry level points for, um, for referral. So explain to me, because it is the Pelvic Health Centre, how does, I mean, I suppose it can kind of get gynaecology, but how does urology and I don't know what the word is for uh, bowel, recto, whatever, 
how does that all fit in with it? <laughs> Kate's laughing at my lack of lingo here. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I was doing it very quietly, Karen. You didn't have to dog me in. <laughs> I don't laugh quietly. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> colorectal specialist is what you are probably you looking go. for yeah. <laughs> um colorectal really plays a big role in the pelvic floor side of things because it's it's almost the forgotten problem that a lot of people struggle with not being able to open their bowel properly we do hear about people having fecal incontinence not nearly as much as we hear about urinary incontinence but the one that I think a lot of people don't hear about is the fact that lots of people actually struggle with opening the bowel and they don't quite fit into the category of being truly constipated. They'll still open their bowel most days, but they'll struggle with it and have to strain and won't be able to empty their bowel properly. So the general public will often think that that's not constipation, um, but they don't know what to call it and they don't know where to go. Um, and that's what makes up a lot of the caseload that Alison and I see. So what causes that kind of sort of half-hearted constipation? And how common is it? Like, is it as common as urinary incontinence? We don't really know how common it is because there hasn't been great research done into how prevalent it is. And a lot of people don't admit to it. But we think it's a lot more common than we realise, but it's certainly one in six women have problems with their bowel, so it's quite high. It's interesting you say that because a couple of years ago one of my older relatives was struggling and they ended up in hospital and they said to me, I haven't been able to go to the toilet. It's really made me constipated. And I said, well, have you told the doctor? No, it's embarrassing. Mm. And I think that uh, we hear that word constipation a lot and um, when people use the term constipation, they might often associate it with I haven't been able to empty my bowel for days and days um, or that they're talking about um, is the stool that they're producing really hard and firm. Um, but often it can also refer to that when they've finished on the toilet, they still have that feeling of being incomplete, that they haven't fully emptied their bowel or that they've had to use different manoeuvres um, to try to empty their bowel, whether they rock side to side or use their hand in different ways to try to empty. And all of these things come under the, the different requirements for what we call chronic constipation or obstructed defecation. They fit in this criteria. And when people have this happening on a consistent level um, for more than a few months, then it comes into this definition for obstructed defecation. And very often when this happens, people have this problem where their pelvic floor muscles are really not relaxing well. And if those muscles continue to hold on when they're trying to empty their bowel, then it's very difficult for the bowel to start to empty and to fully empty when they go to the toilet. So that's where physiotherapy comes in because we're the muscle people. We want to help people learn how do you get those muscles to relax so that you can actually empty the bowel and bladder, but we're talking about the bowel now, um, properly when you go to the toilet. 
what causes that tension or that inability? I mean, it's it's not just tension. There's got to be other factors as well, has there? What co- what are the main causes? Go, Alison. Oh. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so I, I think of the, the pelvic floor like any other muscle in the body. They might be more difficult to access, but um, <clears throat> just in the same way as any other muscle, they're a, they protect you. So any time that there is um, pain or, or anything else to protect you from, the pelvic floor will come on. So, yeah, often it does come back to when there's been some obstetric trauma, when people have had their babies, that muscle might learn to come on after you've had pain from obstetric trauma it might come on um, after you've had surgery or even if you've had one episode of a painful poo or defecation um, if that has um, caused a little tear or an anal fissure often after that those muscles will want to tighten up and protect you but once that has settled down and there's no further pain after that surgery after that fissure the muscles should go back to um, settling down and working properly. But sometimes those muscles get into that circuit of of continuing to hold on um, tighter than they should. And if they're in that habit, then sometimes they continue to stay in that way and we need to teach them again to get back into that habit of holding on and letting go when you go to the toilet and then holding on because that's the way that muscles should work in that circular way. Often do you get people coming in and asking you about that kind of question because that's kind of a low-level annoyance for most people, isn't it? And we tend not to take action on low-level irritation things. It's only when it becomes an issue. And if it's kind of, oh, it's not quite empty, but I'm okay, how many people actually want to do something about it then do you think until we ask them like often people are like this is uh very often it's what people come in with but sometimes they might come in for something else. And we look at things from a pretty holistic perspective. So if we would always ask them these questions, like when uh, when you are finished, do you feel empty? And often people jump on that and go, oh, my goodness, no, like I have that consistent feeling all day. It's really annoying. So like we're always very thorough in these things. And uh, mm. if, if people are like, no, no, I'm fine, you're like, okay, move on. But, yeah, it's amazing how often people, are like oh yeah always <laughs> yeah and that difficulty wiping clean where they'll say they use a whole roll of toilet paper to try and wipe clean and still don't stay clean that there's always just something there when they go back to the toilet they can wipe again and there's always something there and it just causes this real bother um, and the moment you ask the question so like, oh can I do something about this <laughs> It's interesting, isn't it? Why do you, um, it's kind of almost like we're not aware that this is actually a problem. Do you find that? And I think people, even if it is a problem, they quite often, if they've mentioned it to a GP or to someone else, they're like, no, that's just, okay. Because they don't know where to send them to. I know it's not normal, but what do I tell you? I don't know what to tell you. I don't know where to tell you where you should go. If you don't have the advice, people tend to, ignore Um, why is that the case why is it that it's not that well known I can see Alison nodding here not very sexy 
it's not very sexy, is it? <laughs> Who wants to talk about pooing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not good dinner time conversation, but it's amazing how when you bring it up or if you're out meeting new people and you mention what you do, it's amazing how like you know, 10 minutes later, people be like, you oh, know, well, actually, can I just <laughs> talk to you? Because um, like I or or my friend <laughs> has this problem. <laughs> yeah. What's interesting to me is when I think of pelvic floor problems, I think a lot of people do this. It's either for men, it's about the prostate. And for women, it's about problems after childbirth. But it's really not, is it? This happens whether you've had kids or not, doesn't it? Yeah, Which has happened absolutely. Um, with bowel problems, we know that it is more common in women. Um, the caseload tends to be two-thirds women, one-third men. Um, Why is it, that? But it's not, we don't actually know. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't really know the answer to that. And a lot of the women we see haven't had children. You know, we do see a lot that have, but... Alison will back me up here that we have a lot of women that come through who could be early 20s, um, haven't had children at all. Um, you'll see women in their 40s and 50s who still haven't had children and they've been having problems for a long time. So childbirth definitely plays a role um, for some women, but it's not the only cause. And I think that um, we want to get the word out there about pelvic floor health, but when you do hear uh, or see that people have some knowledge of pelvic floor health, the stereotypical knowledge of it is that muscles get weak after childbirth and that people need to do a lot of pelvic floor muscle exercises to strengthen those muscles up. And it's good to see that that message gets out there somewhat, but with a lot of the complex pelvic floor patients that we see, a lot of the um, work that we do is actually working on the coordination of those muscles and often it's getting those muscles to calm down and relax because they're actually working too much and that's why it's just really important that people actually have an individual assessment of their muscles to see where they're at because a lot of the people that we see have actually been saying to us, oh, I've been doing these exercises for ages, so I don't know what you're going to do because I've been working on those exercises and doing those Kegel exercises for ages, so it doesn't work, so I don't know why I've got to come here. And then when you actually look at the muscles, you're like, okay, let's stop doing those exercises and I want you to do something else um, because when you do an individual assessment of the muscles, that is actually not the problem. There's no reason for those muscles to be weak and, in fact, weakness is not their problem and how, how, what kind of cases or what percentage of cases is that in it's the the kind of caseload that we're looking at uh not necessarily the people who have had children like if you've just had a baby then and you've had a vaginal delivery then in that case your muscles may well be um, weaker in that early um, first child bearing year but if you've never had a baby or you have some disordered eating or you're underweight in these populations it's unlikely that your muscles are going to be super weak and only weak there can be a, a combination of the muscles being actually 
quite stiff and sometimes underlying that stiffness is some weakness but we need to sort out that um, coordination first and that's why it needs to really be assessed initially and not just um, putting strengthening exercises on top because sometimes people can actually end up with pelvic pain and just be wondering where am I going wrong so it just needs to be checked out with their own um, pelvic floor physio where they live. What causes pelvic or, or muscular stiffness? I've not heard, I mean, I can understand that, in, you know, if you, yeah. you're doing a run and you get a stiff calf or something, you pull a calf muscle. But how does that happen in the pelvis? Do you want to take over, Kate? <laughs> <laughs> it's basically, in a really simplistic format, I'll, it's like a minor muscle cramp. So if we're holding that muscle just a little bit tight because we're in a protect mode and we don't actually let it go, it becomes quite fibrous and, and stringy almost so that it just holds there and you can't tighten up, but you can't let go. It just gets stuck at that one point. Um, and I know Alison and I often quite um, describe to patients having a five-storey building with a basement and the pelvic floor should sit at ground. And when we go to the toilet, it drops to the basement, it comes back to ground. And as that bladder or bowel fills, we might go up to level one, maybe level two if it's quite full. And if you cough or sneeze or trip with a full bladder, you'll need to jump to level five, come back to level two. And then it should go to the basement to empty, come back to ground. And what we often find in women, well, in, in any people with pelvic floor dysfunction, is that they're holding constantly at level one or level two. And then as the bladder or bowel fills, they're trying to go up higher to get that control, but they're stuck. They're stuck at level one or two and they can't get to the basement properly. They can only drop to level one and they're trying to get that urine or the, or the bowel contents out through what is essentially a closed hole. It's really interesting you say that years ago I was doing a course and the leader of the course said, okay, we were doing a meditation. Okay, I want you to relax all your muscles. I'm like, yeah, yeah, relax. And then he said, including your stomach. And I went, do you want me to relax my stomach? (laughs) It's funny you say that. (laughs) It's funny you say that because to, to do the right action on the toilet to open your bowel, you have to be able to relax your stomach and you have to be able to get it to bulge out a bit like a pregnant lady. You know, that nice big fat belly is actually what we need on the toilet to open our bowel. And a lot of people struggle because they, you know, you've got to hold it in. You've got to be nice flat tummies. Is something that's really ingrained in our psyche. I had a young girl, a young lady recently who came back to see me um, and she just changed everything just in one session by literally learning how to bulge that belly. And she came back saying she'd gone out to have drinks with her friends and she was talking to them saying, did you know that you have to do this when you poo? And they're all sitting there having a go. And and they're like, yeah, that's what I do. And she's like, well, it's not what I've been doing. I've had to be taught how to poo. (laughs) And, And a lot of people are like that. They go, I've never done that action before. That's nothing like I've ever done. You're like, yeah, that's what we need to do and for some people it's um something that they've always done from childhood and for some people have been fine up to a certain point until something has happened and then they've developed a problem so some people will go yeah actually I can date this from exactly when that happened and some people have just been like no I've been like this my my entire life yeah, I fall into the holding my stomach in thing because I've always been a swimmer and a horse rider, flat stomach. So I remember 
sitting on the toilet, too much information, sorry, sitting on the <laughs> toilet and going, oh my God, look at my stomach. I'm pulling it in as a teenager. I remember doing that because I didn't like looking down and seeing the round belly, you know. Yeah. It's funny, even when you're there on your own, if you can't be natural with yourself, then. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting. Is that the cause of a lot of the women in their 20s? Is that the, the main thing or other things as well? Oh, there's a lot of factors that come into yeah. play, but that is, it definitely plays a role for some people, but there's a lot of factors that come into play. How much does diet come into it and the rest of your gut health and everything where does that fall into this yeah I think we're so lucky to have a dietitian on our team like she's so important and working together with the gastroenterologist like it's um you can just see that come into play we with these um complex patients we do do a multidisciplinary team meeting so we're all on zoom like this and um and when we have um complex patients we can all talk about it and yeah, so I think it's so important having that dietary input and um, and having the the gastro there as well to to help sort out all of those gut issues are just so important. Yeah, because if you've already got blockages or you, your gut's not working properly, that's just going to massively exacerbate any muscular problems, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You've got to have the right consistency of bowel motion moving through. And for these people who get a lot of gas and bloating from the foods they eat, that really plays a role in when you've got discomfort, you've got abdominal pain, it's very hard to let everything relax and do what it needs to do. So having everything moving through from the top really well is really important to allow the bottom half to work. On the counter side, if the bottom side of things is not letting things out, so if if we're not coordinating the muscles properly at the exit and we're not releasing, that will slow the conveyor belt down and then cause problems further up as well. So we do also see quite a few people who will have said, I've seen dietitian before, they don't, that doesn't work. And you're sort of saying to them, but you saw a physio before and that didn't work too. So maybe we need to see both together because it is that combination that really benefits a lot of people. What do you think is the biggest area of lack of knowledge in all this, in pelvic floor health? What's the biggest problem you see? Hmm. And you've probably both got completely different ideas, so. (laughs) Well, there's probably a few. I think that even when people have um, seen a GP before or talked about it um, with other people before, when you kind of sort out their problem and you actually talk them through, we always spend a good 10 or 15 minutes talking about a bit about the anatomy and the function of the pelvis, when they can actually see what's happening with their problem, whether it's that particular type of constipation or type of fecal incontinence that they might have, when they realise what's happening, then they can see why we want them to do the program that we've set for them. They just kind of come on board so much more because the people with, like it's, it's as we said, it's kind of not dinner time conversation, but, you know, it's one thing talking about the um, constipation and fecal incontinence is even less of a dinner time conversation. But 
people realising that there are different types of faecal incontinence. You know, there's the issue of getting to the toilet in time when you're in a hurry and can't make it there. There's people who just um, lose it without even realising and when they get to the toilet they realise that they've lost something in their pants without knowing. And then there are some people who get there, empty their bowel, And it's in the next half an hour or so that they lose a little bit more as they walk around and move about that they hadn't just just losing a little bit in that next half an hour. And so those are the three most common different scenarios of losing control of the bowel. And they're actually three fairly distinct different reasons that people lose control of their bowel. And so when we kind of talk them through why that might happen and what we can do about that, it makes much more sense to them. And so that's why just another reason it's really important to actually have that individual um, consultation and examination. And so I guess people, A, need to know what the problem is and B, know that a pelvic floor physio is probably going to do an examination, whether it's a vaginal or a rectal examination, a finger in the bottom or in the vagina. And um, I would hope that they would know that before they come. But if they're sitting there, um, I will often <clears throat> have that kind of mentioned to them and say, I'm going to come and have a chat with you about a few things now. But, you know, after that, we're going to go and do the exam just so you're, you know, not going to be ambushed with that in a few minutes time. They're like, OK, all right, prepared for that mentally. So we'll come and have a chat first. And yeah, so there's some of the things I think that uh, may not be as well known out there. I'll come back to that in a minute. What about you, Kate? I think it sort of ties in with what Alison said, but there there seems to be the the general understanding in the community is that if something's going wrong with bladder, prolapse or bowel, then the pelvic floor must be weak. So we have to strengthen, strengthen, strengthen. There isn't a lot of understanding that pelvic floor needs to be strengthened, but it needs to let go just as importantly. And so, you know, if you're leaking urine, strengthen, 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 or not always. Sometimes the problem is that you're you're stuck and we need to let go. Same goes with the bowel. Um, Same goes with prolapse for a lot of people as well. So once again, having that individual assessment to work out what's right for you. And also that we know that nearly 50% of the population do their pelvic floor exercises incorrectly when they think they're doing them correctly. And 25% actually push out rather than pull in. So they think they're pulling in, but they're actually pushing out and potentially causing damage. So if you've been doing these exercises and your symptoms aren't getting better, then you definitely need to see somebody who can do an internal examination to actually see what are you doing and let's correct that technique so that you do start to get some benefit out of it. And maybe you've got the right technique, but it's all coordination that's the issue. Um, that they're just not turning on when you need them to and not turning off when you need them to. We've spoken a lot about constipation, but we haven't actually spoken much about incontinence, fecal incontinence, and that's an even more taboo subject than being constipated, isn't it? I had no clue that you can have this. I thought, you know, if you're sick, you might be fecal incontinent, but not if you're you're just a normal walking around person. (laughs) What causes that? Yeah, a few different things. Um, in women, one of there is a, a risk factor of 
vaginal delivery, um, because the vagina is right next to the anus, then as the head passes through, you can get um, some damage to the front part of the anal sphincter during delivery. So that is one of the risk factors, but it's not the only one. We know that up to 10 to 15% of people from an Australian study can have some element of faecal incontinence. So there are a few different things that we look for. One is the consistency of the stool, because if, if you have quite soft or watery stool, then we're much more likely to lose control of it. So we definitely want to um, improve that. We know if the muscles are weaker, then we're less likely to have control of it. So we need to improve that. And we also look for things like the sensation or the sensitivity in the rectum because some people have changes to the sensitivity in the rectum. The rectum up above the anus is looking for what is in here? When is it time to go to the toilet? I have to let this person know when it's time to go. And when it's empty, you don't want it sending signals up saying, hey, let's go. But you also don't want it being overly full before sending that signal. So it has to have a certain normal amount of um, signals, uh, normal amount of fullness to send that signal. And sometimes that gets disrupted. So we need that sensitivity system to be working well. So we're looking for these things. And actually, that's one of the things that the nurse practitioner um, tests for when um, people come in, she can do those tests to um, um, have that testing and reporting done before us or the colorectal specialist see, see our patients. So like we're looking for those different types of faecal incontinence because um, we actually treat them quite differently. Yeah, so the assessment really drives the treatment. So when you do an internal exam, what are you looking for? We want to know, or should I hand over to you, Kate? Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm good. Um, look, with the internal exam, I guess, do you want me to talk you through what we do? You may as well, yeah. Okay. So in general, the patient would be lying on their side curled up in the sort of fetal position. You tend to be more comfortable the more curled up you are. We will have a look from the outside to see is the anus puckering properly um, at rest? Like does it look like it's got a good pucker? It should have a good pucker or is there part of it that's not puckered very well and that's usually a sign that there's been damage caused at some point? Okay, we'll check the reflexes so that if you do um, rub your finger or give a little pull on the anus, it should squeeze back up like a cat's bottom. <laughs> give you a good visual there. Um, and then with a glove and some lubricant, we just place the index finger into the back passage. Now, with a physio, it's always just where the muscles are. So we're just going in. We don't need to prod and poke um, in further where the doctors tend to have to prod and poke. So we just stay still. We check the resting pressure. We get them to squeeze tight so we can see how strong is that squeeze, okay? And then we'll get them to push down like they're trying to open a bowel so that we can see what's is that push going to the exit or is it actually pushing a bit forward or a bit back, which often happens when people have been struggling. They've worked out weird and wonderful ways of pushing and, and it's not necessarily working that well anymore. Um, and we're looking to see whether or not those muscles relax and the anus actually opens, what often happens is those muscles around the anus contract and close when you try and push. So you'll be pushing really hard into a closed exit. 
and therefore you can't get all of the bowel motion out even though it's a good consistency. It won't all come out and you'll leave a bit behind and that's the bit that seeps out later. So that's the bit that people when they half an hour later will find that that bit's just come out into their underwear and they won't necessarily know it's there. When we're looking more at that urgency for someone rushing to get to the toilet and struggling to get there on time, we're really looking at what that rest pressure is like in the anal sphincter because that resting pressure provides you with about 70 to 80% of your control. That's the reason we don't have to walk around all day thinking about holding tight and making sure nothing comes out. We we have that resting pressure through the anal sphincter and then we have a U-shaped muscle above it that creates a kink in the bowel. So it basically bends the bowel off like kinking a hose, if you think of bending a hose in half. Um, So if those two muscles if one or both of those two muscles are weak and we don't have a good closure there at rest, then obviously someone who's got a, a looser bowel motion or a more liquid bowel motion passing through is going to really struggle to stop that from leaking out, okay? And then with the strength, obviously when we do get the urge to go or the message to go to the toilet, we need to know that we can hold really tight and hold that bowel motion in and hold it in for long enough to actually get to the toilet. It's not just, oh, I can hold tight for one or two seconds and then it drops off and I've got no control. This is a bizarre question here. How did you two end up doing this? Why why did you end up specialising in this? (laughs) I don't know about you, Al, but it wasn't where I thought I was heading in life. (laughs) I think it's the kind of job that finds you. You don't find it. Like I was was looking to come back to Brisbane to get married, so I wanted a permanent part-time job. So I I found the only permanent part-time job I found was at at the hospital and it was in pelvic floor so I thought well I'll take that and I'll see what happens and I'm still there 20 something years later and then one of the doctors who is at QPFC um, walked in many years later into my office and said well I'm setting up this bowel clinic at the hospital so um, so you'll come and work in the bowel clinic and then a few years later here we are working privately as well. So we actually work together. Kate and I both work together publicly and privately. Wow. What about you, Kate? Well, many years ago, I was going to be a neurophysio. I was going to Cambodia to work with landmine victims. And so I was working as a neurophysio in the hydrotherapy pool at the Wesley Hospital. And as people in Brisbane would know that the Wesley Hospital has a maternity unit. So the people I was working for got me to do the research behind and set up an exercise class for the pregnant women and the rest is history. (laughs) I basically changed path and found that one really interesting and started heading down the the path of, of pelvic floor physio with pregnant women and gradually moved more and more into just pelvic floor and now I see very few pregnant women and I only see pelvic floor people. It's funny, isn't it? Because I've done a couple of other interviews recently, but I didn't realise the role that our pelvis plays in our overall health. And I don't think many people do. I think that the the brain knows that like 
it needs to protect the pelvis, that this is the reproductive organs and it's it's um, plays such a role in like going, right, this is vital organs, this is where reproduction happens, I really need to protect the pelvis. And we also see a lot of people with pelvic pain and pelvic pain in my mind fits very much along the same lines as the people with um constipation and when we're talking about constipation we're not talking about those people who ate something and had a couple of days of constipation we're talking about the long-term constipation but the pelvic pain and the chronic constipation people fit fairly well together I think because it's all of that the muscles are on and find it difficult to let go so yeah, like we we do see a lot of people with um, with pelvic pain, whether that includes those with endometriosis or not. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of that is the the brain trying to protect the pelvis uh, because it is just such a vital area. Menopause plays a big role too, because mm. the structures in the pelvis are very estrogen sensitive. So when we go through menopause and stop producing estrogen, that really affects the strength and the bulk of both the, the bladder and the anal sphincters so that women who have been getting away with a possibly slightly weak sphincter either for their bladder or for their bowel um, suddenly find that when they hit menopause they become symptomatic and are just not managing to, to get away with it anymore. So that can be a real problem. And estrogen also really affects the, the lubricant and the elasticity of the vaginal walls. So women will often start to complain of pain with intercourse um, and general discomfort even in the vaginal area when they go through menopause. And that's something that isn't well understood by women when they come in. You know, people are sort of like, oh, can I please go through menopause? I'm sick of having periods. But they don't realise that it comes at a price. So in regards to going through menopause, how does that impact? Because I know you can suffer from uh, vaginal atrophy and all your muscles change and the strength and no oestrogen and everything. How does it impact you in terms of your pelvic area? It has a big impact on the pelvic area, but it tends to be that it impacts at the time of menopause um, but doesn't necessarily continue to get worse because okay. you once you have that hormonal change, that change is there. So people are often very worried when they start to get symptoms that it's like, oh, it's going to get worse, it's just going to keep getting worse. It's like, not necessarily. We've had that hormonal change, we start to deal with it and it can plateau or even get better. So, yes, definitely the weakness is something that people start to notice, that they're more likely to start noticing that leaking of urine, less control with their bowel um, when they go through menopause. If there was a bit of an underlying weakness there already, the lining of the bladder is quite estrogen sensitive as well. So when women go through menopause, they're more likely to start getting those overactive bladder symptoms. So the need to rush to go to the toilet, not being able to hold on for as long as they used to be able to. And then as we also said, that um, lubricant and the elasticity of the vaginal walls can then play a role with discomfort with intercourse. And some women just go, oh, well, I've got this far, I'll just give up. And they, that can have a real impact on how they feel about themselves and on their relationship. Um, for some women, they don't mind, you know, but for some it, it's quite devastating to know that they can't enjoy sex anymore um, and they really want to be. And 
If you do have a mild prolapse, premenopause, when there's good lubrication in the vaginal area, you often don't feel it and it's no big deal. There's a bit of movement in the vaginal walls. That's pretty normal, to be honest. But once you go through menopause, if you don't have that good lubrication in the vaginal walls, it almost gets a bit sticky. And the vaginal walls are a bit like the inside of your cheek in your mouth. So if you think of that drying out a bit, it can become really sensitive and sort of almost like you've got little cracks in it that become, you're very, very aware of it. So any extra movement in the vaginal walls, women often feel so that they're then saying, oh, I can feel stuff moving down there. I don't like that. I need that fixed. But if we can just improve the integrity of the vaginal walls, any movement that's going on stops being a problem. So we often talk to them about um, if they have never done before, we might talk to them about using lubrication, whether it's just a usual water-based lubricant or if they have a lot of pain, we might direct them to a more viscous lubricant like using olive and bee, which is just um, pure olive oil and beeswax, which uh, is made in South Australia, which is a great product. Uh, so there's a lubricant and they may well talk to their doctor about using topical estrogen, which can make a big difference to their overactive bladder symptoms as well as to the vaginal atrophy. The next thought's gone out of my mind. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, they shouldn't just automatically assume that they need to stop having intercourse. Sometimes people will stop because of what's happening with their partner at the same time. So if that's the decision that's right for them, then, of course, that's fine. But sometimes we actually work with the sex therapists who are a psychologist. We have a few in, in Brisbane who they're a psychologist who have done a PhD in sex therapy. And we will work with them. Um, they're hard to access. They have long wait lists, but um, working with them is great to um, doing the physical work with the um, therapy work so that people can get back to it if that is what they want. Wow, I, we've been talking for so long, ladies. Thank you so much. I want to carry on with this conversation, but it's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You appreciate it. It was so much fun. I learned so much that, yeah, I think it's important that we get this kind of stuff out. Yeah, thanks for getting the word out there, Karen. Absolutely. You are welcome. Thanks so much for coming on. All the links to connect with both of you and all of your information will be on the webpage that goes with the podcast. But, yeah, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure, Karen. <laughs> thank you. for joining us this week on menopause marriage and motherhood make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite player and while you're at it we'd love you to leave us a rating on itunes or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show that would be amazing too be sure to tune in next week for the next episode and remember if you're busy thinking about what you can't have how on earth are you going to enjoy what you can have see you next week